0: Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Janet McCalman about sex and suffering. And this is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome back. Thank you, Beth. Now, um, we were just speaking last time, I think, about um, poverty and pain. Can you explain a bit more about this?
1: Well, Poverty makes everything worse. Poverty shortens your life. Discrimination shortens your life. And we can measure that. So there are huge differences between how long people live according to their income, uh, the amount of control they have over their lives, um, and whether they live in a world that respects them. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be really well off to have a long life, because there are poor countries in the world where they've done very well with life expectancy. Um, so that the, this, the Indian state of Kerala, which is a very poor part of India, has life expectancies which are as good as the United States um, because of the sort of government they have uh, and the, the health care system that they've put in place. Uh, But it's got a democratically elected um, communist government uh, in partnership often with coalition with the Congress Party. But it's got a very different ethos. And uh, so, you know, you can have very good results in poor countries if you understand the basics of women having education and being in control of their lives and autonomy of good food and that being guaranteed um, of good primary care uh, and uh, health education. So poor countries can do all right. But in a country which has a great deal of inequality like ours, then the, de- the outcomes are very different. And, of course, the people who have the worst lives in terms of lack of control and respect and income are Aboriginal people, and that's where the gap is even biggest
0: yeah, yeah, you, you're certainly right about that. And uh, so, uh, going going back to the um, women's hospital, um, what was you were speaking about the relationship between the patients um, and the doctors, which seemed quite good. What was the relationship like between the patients and the nurses?
1: Look, over time and between individuals, that would vary. A lot of things that go wrong in hospitals is because people are overworked and, and they also just run out of emotional steam, you know. So we're seeing this with COVID, that people are burnt out. And if you're working in a hospital for 40 years, it's unlikely that you will remain as alert and sympathetic as you were when you started. Um, so there's that to consider, but also you know, the world was crueler in the past. People were much harder about, um, th- about how they treated others, particularly women and children. People were very cruel to children, for instance. Uh, and and you know, they wanted to control the environment. They wanted to control the chance of germs. So there were no visitors allowed. Um, fathers couldn't visit their wives with a new baby one father used to stand outside the hospital with a big sign right with writing on it I love you and to show it to her Um, children in hospital were not allowed to see their parents because whenever their parents came and left they cried so you couldn't upset the children if they saw their parents that would upset them you know so it's all that sort of madness that they had um, which is really about maintaining control and making sure they didn't get infection coming in Um, the nurses I heard many stories as we did do oral history in the end of considerable cruelty from midwives Um, but that still happens around the world Um, I remember hearing a story of a Someone having giving birth in Moscow only 35 years ago where the midwife in the leading hospital tried to push the baby out from the fundus from the top of the stomach, which is extremely dangerous and this woman tore very badly. But the midwife was in a hurry to get home. So, you know, bad stuff happens when childbirth is not properly managed and supervised and uh, people aren't trained and they're overworked. Um interestingly, some of the best one of the other big stories in the women's hospital is about the migrants coming after the war, because they um, took the huge number of immigrant women, didn't speak English. The only ones who could communicate with them initially were the, the wardsmaids who spoke the, the languages. And so that the, the cleaners in the hospital often became very important in. in in wardsmaids, in communicating with patients. Um, But then they began to employ an interpreter. But the Australians found, particularly the Italians, very difficult to deal with because the Italians believed in letting rip and having a good scream when you're giving birth. And uh, that was not, the Australians would just swear and use a lot of very bad words, uh, mostly. And so... um, since all the women in the old days were delivered in the same ward, there'd be eight beds with curtains between them. So you could hear all the other patients. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, one, one woman who was a very, very young um, mother and had gone into childbirth not understanding where the baby would come out. She thought it might come out through her belly button. So she was... Pretty panicky. She was about eighteen, and uh, she asked for a bedpan, and the midwife said, "You asked for that again, and I'll slap you." So that was that sort of thing went on. Um, but they're also very good nurses and very caring nurses. Um, and uh, but I think there were some of the, there were some amazing stories. And uh, I mean, I talk about the military style of the hospital. One of the stories we were told from an Italian woman was that her cousin was going in was in labor and they were both pregnant so she went in with her cousin to the labor ward to keep her company and they were both stripped showered shaved and shaved before anyone realized that only one of them was in labor <laughs> <laughs> so <That's awful>. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that was <laughs> and that, that. As I said, they were military, but that that has changed, and there's been um, an enormous change in the way midwifery is taught and practiced. Um, and the the stalwarts of the profession who stayed and went into the leadership in the hospital, they fought for that sort of reform and got it.
0: Right. Well, um, how do you think? things have changed, especially in the regards to people and poverty and medical procedures? Well, um,
1: the the difficulty is, I mean, we have in our public hospitals and teaching hospitals amongst the best services in the world. Uh, Now, yes, you can have, you can get non-urgent operations more quickly through the private sector, but um, the private sector it's a profit-making organ sector and they don't have permanent staff usually in the hospitals. They have agency nurses. Uh, so if it's something straightforward and not a complicated case, you're probably fine in a private hospital. If you're very ill, no one I know at the university would go to a private hospital. You go to a public hospital. And of course, if you're very, very ill, you'd be admitted straight away. Um, so if you go in as an emergency, um, and, and your life's in danger, you know that you're going, if you're going to the Royal Melbourne or the Austin or the Alfred or Monash or Western or any of the big country teaching hospitals, that you will get the best care probably in the world. So, and that's free. Um, so, you know, medical insurance is good for backup. Um, it's good for uh, non-urgent surgery. But uh for life saving, you, you go public.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's right. And I mean, I, I think the amount you actually pay for private cover, you're better off, I think, investing that money. So that if you you do need any medical procedure that's you know that you've got to be on a waiting list for, and you can probably pay pay a few thousand for it rather than in, over the yeah. term of twenty years paying many thousands of
1: dollars. Well, you don't know what's going to happen to you. And uh, in nine two thousand eleven, my husband and I both had life threatening events. Well, two thousand eleven, he in t- two thousand and twelve. If we'd had to pay through that through our private income, we'd have been ruined. We'd have lost our house. We'd have lost savings, superannuation, everything. So, I mean, a friend of mine had leukemia and she did it through the public system. There was no way that you can afford to pay for the treatment of a serious illness yourself. You have to amortize that cost through insurance either private insurance or through your taxes so we all pay our taxes they're meant to pay for our public hospitals and we know that you know only some of us will need maximum care for a long period in our lifetimes Uh, but if it happens that care is there so it's like your, your your fire insurance you know you don't on your deathbed, say, oh crumbs, link of all that money I wasted paying for fire insurance and my house never burnt down because you had all those years of not having to worry about what you do if your house burnt down. So that's the difference. And paying through tax is paying very much less than if you would pay, of course, even through private health insurance. So it would be good if we paid a bit more tax and we paid, a levy to pay for the, the um, NDIS, um, and uh, the public system is what everyone used. And, and of course, if everyone uses the public system, then all the rich people want it to be really good. And that changes the politics of the support for public health.
0: It's quite amazing, the system in this country, especially in comparison to the UK, and needless to say, the USA, with people having enormous debts when they've gone into hospital with with COVID.
1: Not in the UK. Everything is free. Everything, even more so than here. All their drugs are free. So uh, everything in the National Health Service is free and has been so since 1948. Um, And... the the point is that that's become normalised. People expect healthcare to be free. They never pay to go to see GP. They don't pay to go into hospital. They don't pay for their drugs. They don't pay for X-rays. All the things we do pay for, um, and um, they see that as part of the the social contract, and they love it. And you know the way that the British celebrated their culture. For the opening of the Olympic Games, there was this wonderful scenario they did about the National Health Service. I mean, what other country in the world would celebrate its nurses and doctors and have all these children running around and you know, being pushed around on bed? So it was the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital who did it. But, you know, there's a huge propaganda campaign from the United States that spends far more money on health care than the UK. And the UK system has been underfunded in recent years since the Tories started to practice austerity. So that's why they're in strife at the moment. But now COVID is an absolute emergency. Probably no hospital system can cope with it comfortably. Um, And and so, uh, you know, in the United States, most causes of bankruptcy are medical problems.
0: Is People any... are ruined by
1: being sick, by getting cancer. That ruins them. They get ruined by having a baby.
0: Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, look, I think it's
1: important to just go back to this idea about what we get as taxpayers. And we've got a very sort of uh, mean attitude. Oh, I pay this amount of tax and what do I get out of it? But what we're doing is sort of paying for mass insurance and where we mutually support and insure each other. And by doing so, the cost to us as individuals is drastically reduced. Uh, and it gives people a sense of security and safety that they feel that their country's got their back. And, uh, you know, the crisis with COVID has shown us that what really matters is that people feel that the society, their society, has got their back, um, and that if a disaster happens, as it did, that uh, you'll be helped financially uh, to survive, uh, or a business will be helped. Now, they've not done it enough in Australia, and they've done it badly, but it's the right thing to do. Yes, yeah, certainly.
0: Uh, so, do you have any future study plans?
1: Well, the, what I've just done is publish a new book based on a very big study of convicts from Tasmania and um, trying to trace what happened to them and where they'd come from and what their lives were like outside the convict system. And the book is just about the very large number who came to Victoria and which, who hadn't been thought of and written about before. So it's called Vandemonians, the repressed history of colonial Victoria. And that's very much about poverty and pain, Um, that most of the convicts, what was distinguished them most of all was that they'd lost parents, that they'd lost the family to support them. Um, And the the ones who are the most fragile and the most damaged and who do worst were women, particularly if they came from very rough port cities like Liverpool, as opposed to if they came from the Irish countryside, they did perfectly well. But if they came from places which had been really dangerous for their mothers and where in pregnancy and in the baby's early life, um, they'd been surrounded by violence and alcohol and venereal disease and stress um, that, uh, and malnutrition and neglect, that um, their life chances were dramatically damaged. And so they had very low fertility. They didn't have a lot of children because they'd had too much venereal disease and their rate of alcoholism was very high. But the men did all right. If they survived the convict system, they probably did a bit better than if they'd stayed in England.
0: and uh, the other other book that... um... You've co written just recently on about COVID? Oh, oh, that was edited with Emma
1: Dawson, and that we put together a book of essays about what should we do with Australia when COVID is over. Um, and uh, um, so it's looking at all that we got she, Emma had wonderful contacts, and I had a few, uh, all sorts of people, some politicians, but mostly people who are working in policy or in the field, uh, writing about what in their area needed to, we could do after COVID to make Australia much more resilient, sustainable, deal with climate change and deal with inequality at the same time.
0: Right, yeah, so do you think that there's a connection between uh, the economy of the country and the, the way that um, hospitals are run? The, the, sorry, with... Uh, uh, a bit about the economy of the country and the way hospitals... Oh, yeah, are
1: yeah, right. no, uh, yeah, well, there is. Um, but it's principally about values and um, we have had since the 90s an increasing devaluing of uh, the public sector, whether it's the public service or uh, schools or universities and medicine. Now, they've, they've been kicking and... Fu- been kicked, dragged, kicking and fighting into... kicking and screaming into trying to keep up with public demands, but um, we don't actually value the way you sh- a society needs to invest in its people. And if you invest in the people, uh, the economy actually begins to do much better. So uh, if people are, are healthy, got have ha- safe housing, secure housing, secure income, uh, can get the education they want, um, and there's a, there's a system of good social justice and criminal justice, uh, they will flourish. So you need a nurturing state, a state that looks after people. We've, we've had that in a bit in the past, um, but we need to sort of work on that again uh, because what COVID has exposed is that a huge number of us um, are in a very fragile position. It uh, doesn't take much for everything to fall apart. Uh, we have, they have, People have to do jobs which, in you know, a pandemic, are dangerous. They're very poorly paid. They're insecure. They can't afford housing. We've allowed our housing to become unaffordable and to become a massive source of private wealth rather than shelter for the nation. So, you know, um, a new government will have to. Uh, and certainly Labor has promised this, a, a big housing future fund which will guarantee funding for public housing and social housing and affordable housing. as all three different things which will go on in perpetuity like there is one for medical research. So these are investment funds that keep growing. Doesn't mean that all stops when the government gets kicked out. So that's number one. But the other thing they want to do is to follow, and this is one of the things we argued for in the book, is follow the example of the governments of of Chifley and Curtin after the war, when Australia was reconstructed and really put on the path to our modern development with a welfare state, with universities, with schools, with housing, and a big boost to industry. And for us now, this is going to have to be rebuilding the country with a renewable led with renewables economy with a green energy um, and redoing all of our economy with in that way. So there's a big job to be done, but it was done in the 1940s uh, and it can be done again.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people are wanting that job security because with that job security, at least people can actually um, get a housing loan, can't they? Yes, of course. And, uh,
1: you know, we're getting we're going back to the 19th century. And in fact, we didn't as a nation get job security until the 1940s and 50s. And that came through a massive increase in government expenditure. Uh, The modern middle class was built then with government jobs, teachers, nurses, administrators, engineers, And now we've gone and shrunk the state, you've gone and shrunk the opportunities for middle class work, but for men, unskilled and skilled men, they got jobs in permanent jobs for the first time in government instrumentalities, like the State Electricity Electricity Commission, um, uh, with the Board of Works doing all the sewerage and the water supply and the dams. Now we've privatised all that, but In the 1950s, it was the first time in history that unskilled men got a secure job with work from January to the end of December with a paid holiday, sick pay and leave. Mm. That's the first time. And they were unionised. But it's really because the government stepped up. And that's what we're talking about now. We've had all this propaganda for the last 40 years that the government is evil, that the government kills the economy. On the contrary, what new economists are saying is that when governments partner intelligently with, with business, that's how you produce real social and economic growth. And most of the economists arguing this now happen to be women. So there's a very dramatic change in um, what's happening and what the sort of thinking that's going on. So if listeners want to follow, there's a woman called Mariana Mazzucato, who is part Italian, part English. Uh, There's an American called Stephanie Kelton. Um, And these women are giving us a new white pathway to being able to use the resources of government to make society work much better.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very interesting, actually. And it's interesting, the connection between, um, you know, the funding of hospitals and uh, the, the treatment of women and the economy as well. Mm. Yeah, so, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you, Beth, for having me. it a pleasure. And I've been speaking with Professor Janet McCallman about sex and suffering. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.